My name is Jared, I'm the high school director here, and it's my honor and privilege to share with you this morning. Uh, years ago, many, many years ago, 2001, 2002, my wife and I helped at a summer camp in Colorado, in the mountains of Colorado, and the, the cabins were off on one side of the camp, and then we had to go down this road to get to the back end of the camp where we could actually burn a fire. And so we had this campfire one night, and we were singing camp songs and being goofy, having fun, uh, telling stories. We had a great time, and then we dismissed for everybody to go back to their cabins, and my cabin of little guys all took off so they could pillow fight before I got back because they're opportunistic like that. And I walked back a little bit more slowly and as I was on this road with trees to my right and the house, or trees on my left and the house on my right, I looked up. I looked up and as I looked up, I, I opened my eyes and looked and I saw something very much like this. This is actually a picture taken by a friend of mine named Graham who lives in Colorado and is an incredible photographer. He sent this to me because I asked him for a picture. It's very much what I saw that night. You see, I, I grew up near Seattle and we would spend nights out on the trampoline. We would sleep outside because the summers were cool and very pleasant. Um, and so we had a great time, but I never saw this. We would go camping, and you'd look up in the middle of the night and see the stars, and it was really pretty, but it didn't look like that. And that night, walking down that road, I was in awe of what I saw. It made me feel so small. And the truth is that, that we are called to shine like stars, to shine brightly in the universe that God wants us to shine like a star in the vacuum of space. I've also heard, are you ready? I've heard that the stars at night <laughs> are big and bright, deep in the heart of, I have, I guess I have not yet been deep in the heart of Texas, so I need to know where to go. I don't know if you've looked up in the middle of the night around Frisco and McKinney and you've looked up and gone, Huh, that's kind of disappointing. Um, maybe it's pollution, maybe it's the light from the surrounding cities, I don't know, but I guess I need to go deep into the heart of Texas to find out where the stars are nice and bright. So if you know a good place to go, camping, or a good place to go see the bright stars of Texas, send me an email, let me know, I would love to know. Uh, we learned last week that we are ambassadors for Christ. Every believer in Christ is an ambassador. We're made to shine brightly. We're not for our own glory, but for His. Because we're citizens of heaven and we are children of the King, we can live our lives boldly without fear and in unity. And as a way of reminder, this was really, really important. It stuck out to me greatly last week. We, every believer, we work out our salvation. We do not work for our salvation ever. The Christian's obedient actions are always a response to the favor that God has already given, never to earn it. God's not a coach that we earn playing time from. He's a loving father who's already blessed us and we bear his image. 
So this morning, we're going to look at the next section of Philippians, and as a way of reminder, there are four main ideas that we find in the letter to the Philippians. First, Paul is assuring the Philippians about his status, where he is at. He's calling for, the, for unity in practice as the church lives their life together, as the body of Christ there in Philippi, and he's warning them against Judaizers, and he also expresses deep gratitude for their monetary support. And this morning, we're going to see two of those things primarily Paul's call for unity among the believers. So let's jump in. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Philippians 2. We're going to start in verse 14, and it's super short. It's one that we could all memorize. In fact, I've heard it said that it should be tattooed on the brains of every child. And since we are all children of someone, maybe it should be tattooed on all of our brains. Philippians 2.14, really short. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, as the ESV says. Everything. Do all things. There's nothing excluded here. When I hear this, I personally start trying to think of exceptions. Like, yes, I know I should do things, some things, most things even, without disputing or complaining or grumbling. I know I should clean up the cat poop without grumbling, and yet I don't. I fail so very often. And so we start looking for exceptions. Well, what if I don't like what I'm being told what to do? What if, what if I have a really good reason not to do it? What if I have a really good reason to complain about this or to argue with somebody about it? What if I have a good reason? Sorry. The way that Paul discusses this and addresses it, there. Unfortunately for us, there are not exceptions. This is all of life. This is not just within church life. I've talked to a number of people about this even this morning that quite frankly, I think around here with our church, this isn't something as, as a whole. We don't hear a lot of grumbling as a staff. This is a fantastic body. You guys are amazing. And yet we still find ourselves grumbling we still find ourselves complaining. So here's the problem. Grumbling, the word that Paul uses for grumbling is gungizo. It literally means to be dissatisfied or to grumble because of disappointed hopes. This is when we mutter about not getting our own way. It's, it's an idea that a supposedly legitimate claim has not been met and it carries with it this idea of a really strong personal attitude when you have your personal preferences, my likes, I want it my way. Grumbling comes down to our preferences, not being other people's priorities. And when we grumble, it's because we want something a certain way, and we didn't get it that way, so we grumble about it. It's very similar to what many of us have heard on the road. Anybody like long road trips? You like to jump in the car? Get in the car and go and drive for 10, 12, 15, 24, 36 hours, just go for it. You like road trips? Six of you, cool, let's go on a trip. Uh, you'll all fit in my van, it's awesome. We can all have a good time together. Have you heard that question on the road trip an hour and 17 minutes into it? You know what question I'm talking about? It goes like this. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? Not yet. 
Hey, are we there yet? Oh. Are we there yet? No! Are we there yet? Yes. Really? No! Are we there yet? No! Are we there yet? No, we are not! Are we there yet? No! Are we there, are we there yet? yet? Hey, that's, hey, not, that's not funny. Hey, that's really immature. That's really immature. See, this is why you nobody, why likes, nobody ogres. likes ogres. All right, you're All lost. All right, you're lost. I'm gonna just stop talking. Finally. <laughs> you had that experience? Maybe some of us have even fallen prey to the same reaction that Shrek has. Andre and I went and saw this movie right before our first son was born, and I thought to myself, it's a preview of coming attractions. Yes, this is going to be fun. So we often responded, are we there yet? Yeah, get out. We're going 75 miles an hour. I guess we're not there. We haven't stopped. There's a, there's a really, really clear Old Testament parable to what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 2. It's this idea of grumbling. It's the Israelites in the desert. They were really good at this, like masters. They knew how to grumble. You see, God had miraculously rescued them from slavery. This wasn't like with Abraham where he moved him from one home to another. He rescued them from oppressive slavery and he took them into the desert. He provided for them, made sure they had what they needed to survive. He had shown them his power in getting them free and yet, as soon as they entered the desert, they started to doubt. Even before they crossed the Red Sea, they were saying, well, maybe we should go back. This maybe wasn't such a good idea. Maybe slavery was better. Let's look at a short section from Numbers 21. We'll start in verse 4. They set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom, but the people became impatient because of the journey. Are we there yet? The people spoke against God who delivered them and against Moses who was their leader. And now I need your help. I need you to summon your most complainy, grumbly voice you can muster. So whether it's nasal or gruff, I don't care. It's completely up to you, but I need your help. Let's read these two complaints together. Ready? Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. <sighs> At that point, if I hear that in the car, my response is, you're welcome. I mean, uh, I'll take your snacks. I'll eat them. You see, I take that as a personal affront, and so did God. They did not trust his provision. They did not have gratitude for what God had done. And so they complained and they whined and God took it as a personal affront and he sent snakes. They asked, why can't we have some meats? So God sent quail, lots of it. You ever eaten spaghetti and sneezed? And had the noodle just pop out your nose? No, it's a great experience, you should try it sometime. They said, why can't we have some meats? Like the orcs in the two towers. And so God sent them quail. And he said, enjoy. You're going to eat so much of it, you're going to be sick of it. 
but you asked for meat. You complained. You didn't just ask. You grumbled and complained about meat. So here it is. And then they kept complaining. They kept grumbling. They hated this wretched food. And so God sent snakes. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. He took their complaining and their grumbling as a personal affront. But this got their attention, and they realized their folly, so they responded. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. Oh, please. Right? Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. How cool is that? So Moses made a bronze snake. He mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake. He recovered. So God sent the snakes as a response to their grumbling and their complaining, but then he also provided the means of healing. At some point this week, I would really encourage you to check out Psalm 78. It was in my personal devotional reading this week, and in God's providence, preparing this message, I came across Psalm 78, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. It's a psalm written by Asaph, and at the very beginning of it, he really encourages the people who were singing this psalm and who were reciting it and memorizing it to instruct their children, to help their children remember the great things that God had done and all that God had done for them. And then he goes on to recount the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Read it when you have a minute. Kids, children, do you grumble? Yeah, sure. We grumble about things because we don't understand or because it doesn't go our way. This is natural to us. Parents, adults, do you grumble? Oh, yeah. It looks different, maybe. Whether it's our boss, anybody ever, no, I'm not going to ask for hands. Uh, a chore that we don't like doing? Maybe it's a musical style. Do you ever grumble about the music that you hear coming out of the speakers because the only music you enjoy should actually be described as music? Maybe it's that one family member or two. Maybe it's something else entirely. Look, we all have things that we grumble about. And the more we grumble, the more our light diminishes. You see, we were made to shine like stars in the universe. But when we grumble, we cover that light. When was the last time you grumbled about something and it made it better? I really thought about this, and I really couldn't come up with an answer. Because in my experience, grumbling doesn't help things. And let me be very honest too, this is not to diminish in any way very real and felt problems and needs or things that we need to process through and address. Those are very, very important. It's really important to work on things. The problem is that when we grumble, we don't offer a solution. We are simply muttering. So there's a, a line in your notes. And I want you to take some time this week, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, and, and write down in your notes, what's one thing? Just ask God to show you one thing that you grumble about. 
and ask him to help you by his power, by his spirit to address that because when we grumble about it, it diminishes our light. So what's the solution? There's got to be a solution. The solution isn't just to simply stop talking. The solution is to change our focus. Look at this quote by Billy Graham. Grumbling and gratitude are for the child of God in conflict. Be grateful and you won't grumble. Grumble and you won't be grateful. Have you found that to be true? I certainly have. The truth is we see what we're looking for. So if we see things, if we're looking for things to grumble about, if we're looking for problems or looking for an issue to have, we're going to find it. And the converse is also true. If we are looking for things to be grateful for, we are going to see them. God will show them to us. But we have to be watching for them. Look for things to be grateful for. The solution to our problem is not to be quiet, it's to be grateful. John 3, verses 14 and 15. Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus goes back to Numbers 21. He shows Nicodemus that, look, here is the problem of sin. We are all born in sin. We all need to be born again of the Spirit. And just as Moses lifted up that snake, you know what? You know what, Nicodemus? That was was a picture of what I'm gonna do. So when I am lifted up, if you will look to me, anyone who looks to me will be healed. That's what Jesus promised. We should look to the one who brings salvation rather than focus solely on our situation. Did you catch that? We should look to the one who brings salvation rather than focus on solely on our situation. Grumbling dims our star because it's self-focus. Whereas gratitude makes it shine brighter. There's a second aspect to it. This is disputing or complaining. Dialogomai is the Greek word that Paul used there. It literally means anxious reflections or doubt. It comes with this connotation of thinking that we know better and has a seed of pride. It's an active refusal to accept what we have been told or taught and specifically in things that don't matter in this case. I found this quote as I was studying for the sermon. It's from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The author says this, what is at issue is the obedient and percipient, which means having a good understanding of things. The obedient and percipient is acceptance of the word spoken by God, which is not an idea, but the comprehensive declaration of the divine will, which sets all life in light of divine truth. See, the problem is we think we know better than what God has told us, and so we don't go back to the word that he has given us. And it's that pride that stops us from being able to accept the instruction that he gives. The nine times that this word is used in the New Testament, it is always a negative type type of thinking. It's not a helpful attitude of wanting to understand because there is a way of asking questions. There is a way of desiring to understand and asking for clarification. This is not that. This is a a thought process that stems from arrogance and pride. It's disputing with one another and refusing to accept instruction. 
So whereas grumbling is muttering like an upset stomach, it does nothing to help the situation, complaining actively sows seeds of division and strife. The unity of the church is incredibly important. It's so, we must strive for unity within the church. Jesus was really clear about how important this is. In our recent study in the Sermon on the Mount, we covered this, but I think it's worthwhile to go back and to remember this. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Unity in the church is so important to God that he said, if you are bringing something to me as an offering and you remember that somebody has something against you, he doesn't point out who's at fault because that's not the most important thing. The fact of the matter is there was some dispute, there was some disunity and division, and this person then remembered at the altar when they're bringing their offering to God, the best that they had, they remembered a division. Jesus says, leave it. Don't follow through with that. Stop what you're doing. Go and be reconciled to your brother and sister because that, that is actually more important because if that's going on in the background, that's always going to be wearing on you. Complaining dims our star through pride and thinking that we know better. And you see, the light still shines. The light is always going to shine because every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit. But when we argue, when we complain, when we grumble, we dim that light. So why not grumble and complain? I think, I think we understand how destructive it can be. Let's move on to verse 15. Why not grumble and complain? So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Truth is, you are a child of God if you have accepted His grace. You are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or the darkness. First Thessalonians 5.5, 5, we have been saved by grace. God has given us works to do which He prepared far in advance. And we are children of the light. In Philippians, the believers are called to pheno. Pheno is to manifest, to show, to light up, to become visible, to appear. As a Christian, there is no hiding. There's no blending in. Oftentimes, we'd like to blend in. As a Christian, we do not blend in with the culture around us. To be a Christian is to be on display for the whole world to see because every Christian is a light in the midst of darkness. Remember at the beginning of this series, we talked about Philippi, we talked about Rome and how the Philippians were granted Roman citizenship. And with that came a lot of blessings. They were all citizens of Rome, they didn't have to pay taxes, and Pastor Wayne covered that fantastically. They were absolutely blessed, but here's 
here's the rub. Allegiance to Rome from the Romans wasn't just expected. They did expect it, but they expected more. After all Rome had done for them, it would have been incredibly disrespectful and offensive to give their allegiance to anyone other than Rome, at least from the Roman perspective. And that is exactly what Paul is telling them to do, to shine like stars in the sky because they were surrounded not by a benevolent government, but instead they were surrounded by the Romans who were morally corrupt. There's a vacuum of morality. The CSB, I think, does a fantastic job uh, in translating the word foster as stars. Other translations often translate it as light. I, I love the picture of a star because foster is to gleam, to shine, to emanate. We are to shine like stars in the world. Let's go back to something we talked about a few minutes ago. Those mountains in Colorado, when you look up and, and you don't just see a pinpoint or two of stars, but you see the band of the Milky Way. Stand there in awe. Why does a star shine so brightly? You know why? Because it's surrounded by a vacuum in space. It's surrounded by nothingness. And it shines because there's nothing that can compare to it. As we gaze into the vacuum, we see the stars that make us wonder. And we, as Christians, are called to do exactly that. In the vacuum of moral decay, in a crooked and twisted world, with all kinds of thoughts and actions, we are to be different and to shine like stars. God wants us to shine, not for our own glory, but for His. As his ambassadors, we represent Jesus to the world around us. And who was Jesus? What was he? As John said, John 1.9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. As Christ followers and God-fearers, we shine his light. I think it's good to be reminded of this, that God made us to be with him. Go back to Genesis one and two, he made us to be in relationship with him. But then, Genesis three, our, our sins separate us from God. And nothing we do, no good deeds can possibly remove that sin. But God in his grace and his mercy, he sent Jesus to pay the price for sin. And Jesus died and rose again, conquering Satan's sin and death. And everyone that trusts in Christ alone will have eternal life. Eternal life doesn't just start when you die. It starts now because he has given you his spirit and it lasts forever. That is what makes us shine so brightly is accepting that message and putting our faith in Christ. As we, verses 16 through 18, hold fast to the word of life, and Paul goes on, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, should, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Two things about this 
passage that I want to point out. We all want our lives to matter. We want them to mean something, don't we? Many people, you hear accounts of deathbed stories of people who wish they would have done something different or who, honestly, when you're on your deathbed at the end of your life, you're not going to worry about how many cars you have in the garage or what level you got to on Fortnite. It's not going to matter. What will matter is the relationships that you have and the things that God did through you that have eternal significance. We want our lives to matter. Paul wanted his life to matter. He did not want to run the race in vain or labor in vain, and he tells them that specifically. So parents, we want the same things. As we pour into our kids, as we teach them and correct them and love them, we want to see eternal things out of our children. Students, children, there will come a time, maybe there already has, where you begin to think future. You begin to think, what is God going to do through you? And I want to implore you, don't wait. Don't wait for that day in the future. Think about it now. Pray about it now. Engage in it now. Look at the gifts that God has given you as a person made in his image and embrace that now and put the gifts that God's given you to use in the present, not just in the future. Years ago, John Piper preached a sermon to a bunch of college students. He called it Don't Waste Your Life, and then he wrote a book based on that sermon. And I found this quote that I think is incredibly helpful. Whatever you do, find the God-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-saturated passion of your life and find a way to say it, live for it, and die for it. And you'll make a difference that lasts. You will not waste your life. Paul also talked about the drink offering, and this was fantastic and, and very fun for me to read up on and investigate. I found this because this sums it up far more clearly than I could. I thought it was great. Since so much of Paul's imagery in this passage is indebted to the Old Testament, however, he probably has in mind the custom described in such passages as Numbers 15, 1 through 10 where drink offerings are made in addition to other offerings. So Paul views the Philippians' continued obedience and steadfastness amid persecution as an offering to God, equivalent to the offering of his own apostolic labors, labors that may end in his death. So their faith in the face of persecution with an oppressive government, that's their sacrifice to God. And Paul says, I'm pouring out my life like a drink offering. The drink offering was never the main sacrifice. Instead, the drink offering was the smaller sacrifice that brought the main sacrifice to completion. And Paul's saying, I'm pouring my life out for you. And he finds joy in it. And he calls on them to find joy in it as well and to rejoice with him even though he was in prison. And then he turns personal and he gives them two guys that he wants to send to the Philippian church. First is Timothy. He wants to send Timothy. He doesn't want to send the B team. He wants to send the absolute best that he has, somebody who is precious and dear to him. It's clear that Timothy doesn't have a previously existing relationship with the Philippians because of what he says in the letter. But Paul knows Timothy's character. He knows his gifts, and he endorses Timothy. So it'd be kind of like this. If we took one of our high school graduates or one of our high school students and let's say there was a church in Oklahoma that needed a pastor. 
and we trained this student, and then we sent this student to that church in Oklahoma. But before we sent them, we sent a letter and we said, hey, we're gonna send somebody to you, we really want to, they're gonna be on the way in just a little bit, but they are like a son to me, they are dear to us, we love them very much, accept them as you would accept us. Do you think that that church would respond positively? Absolutely. If we have a relationship with them and we endorse someone and we send them to them, then their reputation will precede them. Second, he sends Epaphroditus. And we actually don't know if Timothy completed that mission and actually went to the church. There's nothing historically that would confirm that, though most scholars believe that he did go, at least for a time. So Paul did send Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus did have an existing relationship with the Philippians. In fact, he came from the Philippians to Paul and brought a gift to him. During his journey, Epaphroditus was very, very sick. He risked his life for the sake of the gospel. But the Philippian church, they really wanted to bless Paul, but they couldn't as a church. So they took up an offering and they sent a monetary gift with Epaphroditus. And I really like the way the complete Jewish Bible translates this because I think it, it really does make it clear. He said, Epaphroditus risked his life and nearly died working for the Messiah in order to give me the help you were not in a position to give. It's not that they didn't want to, it's that they were incapable. And so they sent Epaphroditus to do what they could not do. And Paul was really concerned for him, even as he sent him back. In fact, he mentioned Epaphroditus' sickness three times. In verse 26, he said, you heard that he was ill. Verse 27, he said, indeed he was ill. He was near to death, and it's not like he could just drop into a hospital. He was very, very sick. In Philippians 2.30, he said, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Epaphroditus risked his life for the sake of the gospel. And Paul was commending him as he sent him back to the church that he had come from. Paul and these two Christian brothers, they shine like stars. They didn't grumble, they didn't complain. And as we, as we consider this, the best example that we can look at, honestly, is Jesus. Read all of Philippians 2 together. It's incredibly clear. Jesus is to be our model and our example who did not complain or argue, though he suffered unjustly. In conclusion, I want to encourage you. Put on Christ by putting your faith in Christ and he will give you the spirit to make you shine like stars in the universe. As a church, and within your families, and at your workplace, wherever you go, wherever you do, because the truth is the church is not this building, the church is us as we go. What we do on Monday is just as important as what we do today. As a church, may we maintain unity by doing all things without grumbling and complaining because as we do maintain that unity, we'll shine like stars in the night sky for all to see, and this area needs it desperately. I thought it would be appropriate to close 
with Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Let's not be like everybody else walking around dimly. Let's shine like stars in the sky. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have made us a light for you. God, I pray that as we go about our days, that you would show us the areas that we grumble and complain and that you would help us, help us to stop, help us to focus our attention where it needs to be on you. Give us the strength to do that and the boldness. And as we do, God, I pray that you would help us to shine like stars in the universe. And Lord, now as we take our offering, I pray that you would bless it and use it for your work, for your glory, that your kingdom would be expanded. In Jesus' name, amen.